I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hi, it's Allison, and welcome back to the podcast. Before we dive into the Q&A, I wanted to just give you a little heads up that I have registration open for a live webinar February the 23rd in the evening, Eastern Standard Time, to help parents address sibling rivalry, sibling fighting. There have been so many people that have told me that their kids are at each other's throats. They're either being physically violent with one another, they're being rude to one another, name-calling, stepping into each other's bedrooms, disturbing them when they're trying to do online studying, that it's one of the main sources of chaos in the home right now. And so I've got some tips and some techniques to help you identify when to step in and when to step back, and if you do step in, how to do it effectively. And so please, check Check out the link in the show notes for the registration for that event that will be coming up soon. And so let's get going. Thank you again for your questions. You can always email me your questions at allison at allisonshafer.com. Again, I'll put that link in the show notes. But here we have... Uh, my husband and I met with you a few years ago regarding our son. He was five at the time and he was having some trouble. Well, now he is eight years old and I'm faced with similar problems again. I find that as a child, he is very difficult accepting apologizing or accepting that he has done anything wrong. He will avoid, distract, or even defer the onus onto anyone else, but will not be able to take it as his own. I feel that this is starting to impact his behavior now because knowing that he needs to apologize but not doing it I think also makes him feel bad and honestly it leaves his dad and I yelling at him a lot. I hope you can help me figure this out. Oh, the need to apologize. I certainly understand that as parents, we would want to socialize our children 
to have the social compunction to own up to our responsibility in a problem. And if we have made an egregious error, hurt somebody, that we um, apologize and make amends. And that's good socializing. I completely understand that. But we have to differentiate the difference between developing a child's remorse and developing a social etiquette, meaning the more important of the two, and of course we want both in the long run, we're we're doing the long goal of parenting, not the short-term goal, but the long goal of does he actually feel badly? Does he see that he's made an error in his way? And uh, and that he wants to clean that up by saying, "Oh, I'm I I am so sorry. I didn't mean to spill my milk." Or, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I I um I was late and left you folks waiting for me, and I, that was an inconvenience to you." So having that remorse is about empathy and and understanding that you've made an impact on somebody else, and uh, and wanting to acknowledge that. So first I would say, do you think that he is aware of the impact that he has on other people? Is he aware of the impact? Now, kids can be aware of the impact, but when we point it out to them, if they perceive it that we are just showing that they have made a mistake, they might be trying to protect their ego in that they do understand they shouldn't have spilt the milk. They do understand they've inconvenienced you or they shouldn't have taken the toy. They understand it, but they're protecting their ego by saying, you know, I don't care. I didn't do it. She had it first. And we have to really tease out the difference between whether or not they are covering up and using a coping strategy to protect a tender ego by deflecting, um, and and uh, or whether or not they are really obtuse and they haven't been made aware that they're missing some really some social skills, and so most of the time I find that unless you have somebody who's really um, sort of like on the autism spectrum or um, just really having those social skills deficits and there's you know for sure there are there are people and we have ways that we can train them and work with that but the majority of kids and the way that you're describing him is that he's really a person who is just using an uh, an ego defense mechanism and so he doesn't want to show his mistakes. He wants to look superior. He wants to um, uh, mistakes are seen as something that reduces his value and worth. And so when you get somebody who refuses to apologize, it's often because they're just refusing to be compliant to the request or the demand to be subservient, to be made to do. So when we say, say you're sorry, say you're sorry, it's like any other command request. It's like, hang up your coat, wash your hands, sit at the table, don't get up say you're sorry. It's like, oh man, people are always telling me what to do. And so I find that it's easier to just work on the remorse piece and model the saying, I'm sorry. And eventually they will model your behavior and it will just naturally and authentically come out that they are sorry. So I don't demand the, the the repeating of the words because what you're going to get is this very disingenuous, I'm sorry. There. Are you happy? You made me say it. I truly believe that if we go to the um, Adlerian tenant of um, never uh, teach a child something they already know and never, th- that that's discouraging. 
So to say, say you're sorry, that reminder, that prompt is sort of saying, I don't trust you to have known that or learned that yet. And I believe they have learned it. They've been around it. They know that that's the next thing. And what I want to do is to stimulate them to want to feel like contributing that little bit of saying they're sorry. So um, I would model it and um, I would start addressing more why is there a sense of self-esteem fragile at the moment such that they can't tolerate mistake-making. That means that they're discouraged. Uh, there's a discouragement factor there. There's a lack of courage, the courage to be imperfect. So I think one of the ways to think about it, and I just read about this again, said in a different way, same tenets, but described in a different way because I'm reading Jay Sheedy's book about how to think like a monk. And he was talking um, in a way that I talk about when I'm teaching this concept. But he says, when you're thinking about the ego, you either have these feelings of like um, ego superiority or a deflated ego, these inferiority feelings, but they're all based on this sort of scale of, of judgment of better than, worse than external comparators that sort of tie what I'm doing with who I am. So if I spilt the milk, I'm not going to tell you that I did it because that's that's an error, it's a mistake, and therefore I'm a mistaking person, so now I'm less than. I don't want you to see me as less than. I don't want you to see my imperfections. So I'm going to lie and cover up and say, I didn't do it. And I'm certainly not going to say I'm sorry and admit to it. So that's all very ego protection, but it comes from that judgment that our, that our, this um, evaluation of ourself comes on these performances. And so what he says is instead is this is not about superiority or inferiority. This isn't about the ego and an evaluation, but it's about humility. And humility is the idea that every human being is a lifelong learner and there's things that we have mastered and things we haven't, things we are learning, things we haven't learned yet. We're just stumbling away with our imperfections. And of course, sometimes we're going to make mistakes, that it's an inevitable part of life and that we're comfortable with mistake making and that we don't fear judgment around it. And when we get comfortable with that and that humility and understanding it's the nature of life, which is kind of philosophical for a little kid, but so much of what they're piecing together in their mind comes from the kind of reactions and responses that they get from their parents and their teachers and other people around them. So I would definitely learn to be a master encourager that we want to sh show them, we want to model making mistakes, we want to show them our imperfections, we want to be um, have humility in the way that we go through life and we want to really separate the deed from the doer that sense of accomplishment is not is not what makes you a, a better or worse people there's no better or worse people uh, so it's reflected in so much of how we talk to our kids how we quietly appraise them that we don't realize we're judging them all the time and to talk in non-evaluative non-judgmental language to children is a is a real chore it's a real craft um it's it's like you really have to replace your brain with somebody else's brain <laughs> because it is so wired into us in how we talk to children and i can tell you that one of the most controversial posts on my website 
is about praise versus encouragement and why we should never say, I'm so proud of you. And um, and in that post, a lot of the people are commenting, you know, my parents never said they were proud of me. I would have loved to have heard that that my parents were proud. And if you're somebody who didn't get that validation from your parents, I could see why you would want to correct for that and make sure that your child was absolutely validated but what we do is we end up passing the baton from generation to generation with a lot of language that sort of says, you're okay when you're pleasing me. You're okay when you're living up to my mark. I'll tell you if you're a good boy or a bad boy. You know, good boy, you hung up your coat. Oh, good girl, you did just what I said. Um, oh, yay, you got 100% on your math test. You're so smart. All of those ways that we talk to kids are so evaluatory. And, you know, again, does okay for a while for the kid that's hitting all the marks. But think about the kid who's not so sure. You know, they're not getting 100%. And maybe they have a learning disability. Or maybe they have some impulse control. Or, you know, maybe they come from a quiet family and they're kind of loud and bombastic. It's very easy to get feelings of of inferiority and that you're not measuring up to to the way your parents have this vision for you. So I would say, let's find out, let's look, you know, focus on his strengths, focus on the qualities that he does have, downgrade the parts of himself that he's still working on his, on his growing edge. Just work on that strength part, um, improvements, his efforts. Um, stop thinking about achievements so much as just the other, the being with him parts, the character traits, um, being kind, contribution, caring for others. And have faith that when the inferiority feelings go and he gets more comfortable with mistake making, more comfortable in his skin, then he's going to own up to some of that responsibility and the words, I'm sorry, will come free flowing. So I don't force kids to say it. Sometimes I will say, could you let me know that that won't happen again? Or could you let me know what you've learned from this? It's still sort of achieving the same kind of thing. And if I'm embarrassed because I'm in public and maybe they've done something to somebody else um, and I'm embarrassed that my kid doesn't apologize, I might just speak for myself and I, I might just say something like, you know, well, we're still working on that or I can tell from his face that he's feeling badly about that. So you can, even though the words aren't there, we can still address it rather than saying, come on, say you're sorry to that little girl. So there you go. I hope that helps. That was a bit that, that was a bit more long-winded than I thought. Next question. My partner and I separated five years ago, and the arrangement was that she would keep the house in the city where the kids go to school, and I got the cottage where I now live. This was our way of splitting the assets. We have shared custody, so they're supposed to be with me every other weekend. This did work out initially, but my girls have now become teenagers, and they are starting to moan about leaving their friends in the city to come to the cottage on the weekends. I understand that they want to be with their peers and their boyfriend crushes, but I also feel that I pay child support and hardly see them and that I'm also entitled to my time. They are 14 and 15. Thoughts? Well, I certainly can understand that you want to protect the time that you have with your uh, kids. And yes, you know, you are co-parenting and you need to have time and experiences with them. But the problem is that in adolescence, to your point, they that, yep, they're going to want to be with their friends. They're going to want to have a priority that's a little less about the nuclear family, and that's developmentally appropriate. It doesn't mean that we abandon having a relationship with them, but it does mean that we're going to have to maybe do some things differently. And it may not be the old patterns. And so, yes, it is time to reevaluate your arrangement. And uh, I don't know what that might look like, but I would sit down with the 14 and 15 year old and instead of just poking, you know, showing up with a new arrangement, I would actually just arrive with the problem and say, you know, I here's the dilemma. 
I love you. I miss you. I want to have time with you. I want to make sure that we have a good relationship. And we can do some of that by distance, obviously. But we also really need to spend some in real life time with one another. And yet I understand you've got friends and, and you know, depending on we have COVID right now, but whatever, part-time jobs and, and um, other things that are going to be demanding your time more than just me. So what could we do to assure that we make this work in a way that um, that's best for everybody? Uh, so I think just putting the problem out there with the kids and, uh, you know, see what they come up with. To your point, what you don't want is, you know, I'm entitled to this time. It's my weekend. You will get in the car. You will come. And then if they sit there all angry at you, you know, the thing about relationships is you you, you can't mandate love. You can say it's my God-given right and, and you can pull out the separation agreement and the parenting plan and you can show them in black and white. But that doesn't make them want to be with you. It doesn't, it doesn't make the relationship better. And I think just being really reasonable about saying, wow, what a bind, what a pickle. This is a tough time to get through. And having, again, that longer-term view that says, you know, you want to have a relationship with these kids for, for the whole rest of their lives. And um, and in their adolescence, they need you to be there as a strong support person as they go through the, the chaos of adolescence. But they do also need to be with their friends. So what else might that look like? Is that longer amounts of time? Is that bringing friends to the cottage? Um, is that swapping and you staying in the matrimonial home? and the other partner going up to the other cottage. Again, it's, it's about brainstorming and seeing what the kids will, will come up with and not feeling so much that you are, um, you don't internalize this as a rejection of you or that your ex is not um, being supporting or being alienated, nothing like that. It's just simply new day and age, new arrangements need to be made. What can we figure out? And, you know, you'll find that kids will say, well, you're right. I have a party on that weekend, but I can't skip every weekend or I'd never see you. So, you know, let's figure if I skip one, then maybe I'll do two the next time or whatever, whatever you work it out. But we don't have to be, we want to model problem solving with our kids. And it, boy, it takes a lot of the pressure takes a lot of the pressure off of us when we think that we have to figure all this out on our own. Just put it out on the table. This is what we're up against. Got any ideas? <laughs> Kids are pretty amazing. All right, one more here. And this came from social media, so it's kind of short. It just I was asking for questions for the podcast, and what I got back was my own patience level. <laughs> I think we could all relate to that. Um, so, I think we have to first uh, agree that the expression that we use for kids is, you know, kids who feel good do good. And I think that goes with adults, too, that when things are going well for us and when we've got a good sleep and good nutrition and we've got some good wins happening at work and things are going hunky-dory at home, then we seem to have a certain amount of bandwidth to handle some emotional regulation. But then when we are tired and we're hangry and we've been at this for a while and we're collecting transgressions like a rocks in a bag and we feel like we're carrying this load and everything seems like an effort, we, we get a shorter wick. And I do understand that. However, we do also have to realize that when we lose our patience, 
the, there, it isn't like emotions are stored, you know, in a part of our body and that they accumulate. So there's a difference. There's a difference between saying that we collect transgressions and we get tired and we store emotions. Those are two different kind of concepts. So we have, I think we have to be careful about the metaphors that we use so that they truly reflect what the process is that's happening on a psychological and a biological basis. When, when something is happening in front of us and our kids are, um, you know, making a mess in the kitchen and we're trying to get them to clean up and we snap because we feel that our patient's our patient level is low. Uh, and maybe the day before we might have been a little kinder about it. So what was happening in that moment? Well, you know, it's the story that we kind of tell ourselves. And if we feel like, you know, I'm indebted to this. I've worked hard. I've I, I've had to do a lot today. This is the fourth time I've asked. So the story changes. And when the story puts us in a position of being more deserving of getting what we want, right? The loss of patience is, come on, the world should be the way I want the world to be. You know, so it's still on that spectrum of losing our patience still is in that band of of um, sort of demanding, protesting anger emotions that say I'm entitled to something and I'm going to let you know it if I don't get it. And so it's like, you know, you should go faster. The kitchen shouldn't be clean. I shouldn't have to say this five times. So in the moment, if we can stop and pause, I think that's always when we're looking at emotional regulation questions, it's always to stop and pause and to be reflective for a moment, take that deep breath. And we're trying to find that choice point between being reactive on autopilot, reflexive without thinking, but hopefully catching that little pause so that we can do a little self-reflection and instead of being reactive, that we can respond effectively. And so when I'm finding myself losing my patience and I take my breath and I ask myself, why is am I getting triggered by this? Often I have to ask myself the second question, what is in my control and what isn't? So just recently, I arrived at a grocery store on a really cold day, and I was like the last person that they could let in. So I became, was the first person in what grew to be a very long queue to get into the grocery store. And I was irritated by that because I was like, one person, I could have got in if we got would have been here a second before. And also, all these people were going out, and they weren't letting anybody else in. So I was like, what's the system here? So I was getting agitated. I, my, my patience was was waning with this. And I think in that moment then, when I stopped and asked myself, what is this about? I had to ask myself, am I in control of this? You know, Do, do you want to go ask the lady what their system is or, or how long the wait is? Like, what, what is in my control? Because if I need to, like, find out more, then go do that. Go and quietly, nicely ask the lady how many people need to come out or how long do you think the wait is? But if it's just it's out of my control, I don't know. I didn't know that I, the store was going to be overloaded, and that's an aggravation of life. But here I am. It's out of my control. I can't do anything about it, so I can sit here and wait in a happy fashion, or I can sit here and wait and be disturbed as if I'm telling the world, I need you to know that I find this situation distasteful to me because I wanted it to go a different way. And that's, again, a very ego-based thing. I'm not getting what I want. Things aren't unfolding the way I want things to unfold. Like, what an ego, what a ego-driven perspective. So instead, I'm just, oh, this is what life has thrown me right now. I didn't expect it. I didn't plan it. It's not in my control. So there you go. Such is life. So ask yourself, are you in control? Now, with kids, a lot of the lack of patience is that we feel that we should be in control because if we were being a more effective parent, then they would go faster and not dawdle, or they would sit at the table and do their homework, and we feel this sense of responsibility that if I was parenting better, 
that I would influence the outcome. I would get them to sit. I would get them to go faster. And therefore, I'm being ineffective. And it's in the being ineffective that I'm feeling powerless. And now I'm starting to, to, to get generate anger to try to up the ante of coercion for you so that you kind of get a little bit more, oh, she's losing her patience. Oh, now emotions are coming into this. It's a form of manipulation, really. We're trying to make them a little bit fearful of us, right? Telling us, like, I mean it. I can't stand it. You better get around to doing what I say. And I think that the more that you take a parenting class, the more that you load up the tools to be able to say, what's happening here? Why is the child behaving this way? What's my appropriate response? And what's the right tool in my toolbox? The, the more you know, the more effective you are in your responses and those behaviors go away. So you don't feel like you're an impotent disciplinarian. And so you don't need to really have patience issues because things actually move along quite cooperatively in the family. Um, so to that end, yes, take a parenting class. Take a parenting class. But until then, get your sleep, get your rest, have your good vitamins and all that good health. And stop, pause, deep breath. Is it in my control? If it is, what should I be doing that's effective? If it's not in my control, then why ruin my good mood? Just sit back and let it roll. Get off your ego stance and just get into the flow of humility again. So a little bit of a theme today with the ego there. So I hope this was helpful. And again, if you've got a question, please send it to me at allison at allisonshafer.com. That'll be in the show notes um, as well. I will put a link to the registration for my sibling workshop. And thank you again. Catch you next week. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast. So thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.